Hello, horror fans. It's me, Cassandra, from the Horrorcraft Podcast. And on today's episode, we are talking to the author of The Strange Nighttime Journey of Father Stephen Merlot, and that is Ambrose Stolker. Um, he's a wonderful author. This book has such amazing, iconic imagery and deals with very profound subjects. And this is just a really great interview. So sit back, relax, join us for a good time, and let's cue the music. Hello, horror fans. This is me, Cassandra, from the Horror Craft Podcast, and today I am flying solo, but I am not alone because I have on an amazing artist. Um, I want to say artist, but you're an author, but I mean, your artistry is amazing. Um, but you. we have on Ambrose Stolker. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Thank you so much for having me on. No problem. Did I say that right? Stoliker. Stoliker. Okay. So I, I like getting that right because people, my name is like tomato, tomato, Cassandra, Cassandra. Um, so I like getting everyone's name right. But um, this is a treat because like I was saying off camera, this isn't very often that we have somebody reach out to us um, and say that they're a fan of our show. And um, you did. And I got to tell you, after reading this book, I, I'm definitely a fan. Um, I'm excited to see where you go next. I think everything in this book is super well done and has such great detail. So I'm so glad to get into this, but I'm even more excited knowing that you're a true horror fan. So I am. And, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we, in the true tradition of the show, we're going to do a little bit of an icebreaker. Um, we're going to just talk about some horror stuff. So the first one and this is always a hard question to ask a true horror fan because I think this is subjective. So this could be anything that you're feeling right now or your all-time favorite, but what is your favorite scary movie? The Exorcist. Very I, easy answer for me. Scariest I can see that. Scariest book. Yeah, I can see that after reading your writing, I could see that why that would be a very clear choice. I have a great um, story I could tell about when I first read The Exorcist, actually. Um, really? Yeah. Yeah. What's I, the story? Uh, well, I I first saw the movie when I was 19 and I was uh, in a college dormitory at the time. And so the movie scared the hell out of me because I was raised Catholic. And I think that there's a, a special fear of The Exorcist amongst Catholics. Um, yes. But um you know, uh, so I, I, but I didn't read the book for many years uh, after until I was in my early 30s. And um, so I bought the book kind of on a lark and uh, started reading it. And I think I started it around six o'clock in, in the evening. I just finished dinner and I was like, you know, I'll read this for a couple of hours. And what I was really curious about was whether Blatty's book was, uh, whether the movie was really uh, true to Blatty's book. And it was. And so I loved it. You know, it was almost like um, re-experiencing the movie, but through Blatty's eyes as a writer. But anyway, next thing I knew, it was like four o'clock in the morning and I was about, you know, 20 pages left in the book. And it's scary just to read it. it it's a scary book to read. Yeah. It's such an unsettling story. Um, 
and um the guy who delivers the newspaper throws the newspaper and it bounces <laughs> off my door it scared the shit out of me i jumped out of my bed i i, I literally was i it it scared the hell out of me but yeah that's my exorcist reading story yeah that would be truly unsettling i i don't the exorcist i feel like is a whole different level because exorcisms themselves are scary but yeah. then it happening to a child yeah is like a whole other level and i think that's just so deeply unsettling so i i would probably have passed out if somebody had hit my door with a newspaper yeah. it was scary my <laughs> I, I jumped my cats jumped you know everybody was really on edge <laughs> <laughs> nothing like scaring the cats along with you too yeah. <laughs> uh, so the other uh the next question is what is your favorite underrated horror movie and this this is kind of again subjective it could be anything that you feel is underrated or yeah. something that you think the community in large think is underrated yeah and there's a lot a lot of answers i could give but i think you know uh one that pops to mind as underrated is the changeling um mm-hmm. by, with uh, george c scott uh um, yes it actually takes place in seattle where i live um and um it just you know at the time it was uh, that it was released and i think the early 80s it wasn't a big box office hit it, it was not i don't think put out by a huge major studio no um, but it's just a really great ghost story and like all really good ghost stories it's got a great mystery at the center of it and george c scott is obviously just a was a wonderful actor um and uh you know um was so emotive and you could sympathize with his character because you know i'm a husband and a father and i i can't imagine anything worse than than losing your wife and or your, your child in a, in a horrific car accident, which is what happens to, to him at the beginning of the movie. But it's just a great, I think, underrated movie that I think most horror aficionados know about it and have seen it. But yeah. I, I suspect that the populace at large, like casual horror fans, probably don't know a lot about it or, or haven't heard of it. But it's a great ghost story. Yeah, definitely. Um, I... Do you think that it's gaining more notoriety because of the fact that it's been put on platforms like Tubi? Yeah, um, but it does really resonate. And um, I think one of the few movies that I feel like capture kind of the same emotions that that movie puts out, but in such a different way is trained abuse on. It's kind of that, that same kind yeah. of like horrifying, even though that in trained abuse on, you know, his, child obviously is with him it's the whole experience of i'm being put in this situation where i cannot fathom this as an adult let alone now i'm not only responsible for myself but my child and i have to worry about keeping myself alive in order to take care of my child and i think that's kind of the same layering that you see like with the changeling is he goes through this very traumatic event and then he has to unpack that in such a profound way through the plot devices of the changeling. So I, right. I, I do think that that's very powerful, but um, we love Tubi. Um, and I know that that is a main staple on Tubi, but I do, do know a lot of people are starting to find the changeling, which makes me very happy because I do 
feel that that is something that is very underrated. It's a very effective ghost story without having to be in your face, um, yeah. which I think is hard to do. It is, yeah. And it was from the a period when it was practical effects and, yes. and you know, um, and it, it, it has that kind of um that genuineness or authenticity of of a of a, a an early 80s movie that um you know really the performances uh uh by the actors are what carries yeah. the 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 story um like i said george c scott obviously was a academy award-winning actor and um trish van deer who um i believe was his real life wife plays the the leading lady is the leading lady in uh the changeling she's a she was a great actress too so yeah i i love it so yeah if you for anyone who's out there listening hasn't seen it it is fantastic it is on tubi tubi is an incredible resource all you have to do is download it onto whatever device you're on and um you get an access to like I think I've literally tried at one point in time to see how many movies were on Tubi, um, yeah. at least horror wise. And I think I like had to stop when I hit like 10,000. They've um, got an amazing selection. And and I mean, there's something there for everyone, right? I mean, there's like, you know, like the, the best, you know, the, the yeah. elite movies. And then there are movies that are, you know, what I would call like brain candy, you know, like they may yeah. not be great movies, but you either grew up on them and enjoy them. Or sometimes you just want to watch a really shitty horror movie, right. And make fun of it or something, you know, and there's plenty of those on Tubi as well. Um, so I am yeah, a big fan of Tubi. Yeah. I think the thing that I really liked about it is especially during the pandemic where maybe certain people didn't have the resources to have like some of the bigger streamers like HBO Max and stuff like that. There's such a huge catalog in that. And the fact that that is for free. Um, I know I did a lot of like group um, activities on Clubhouse where we would do like watch alongs. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the movies came from Tubi because of the fact that everyone could watch it. Um, and it was accessible so and there are yeah. some really great fantastic especially like older gems that are on there like I know um, the trilogy of terror was on there at one point mm-hmm. like the changelings on there the fog yeah. was on there at one point um, my bloody valentine like that you know they rotate but they do bring a lot of them back and I mean the horror section is just like the blockbuster version of streaming to be it really honest. is yeah yeah, yeah. um and do you ever watch shutter do you watch shutter yes uh yeah i love shutter and i think I that that's such an incredible resource as a horror fan as well because they brought a lot of them back like near dark is one of my my that's underrated yeah favorite movies bill paxton. Yeah. yes bill paxton lance hendrickson yeah. um you know you had it's captain bigelow and you have this kind of neo-Western story yep. that also happens to be a vampire movie. Um, and that kind of disappeared for a while. And Shudder, you know, they kind of led the charge about bringing that back. And they put, they've put it back on the streaming service a couple different times, yep. um, which I think is great because... Mm-hmm. Um, I would hate to see a movie like that disappear. <laughs> um, yeah, I but agree. Shutter does a really good job of picking up a lot of really good movies, and especially with foreign horror, um, 
bringing a lot of that to light. Yeah. I think that there's so much good foreign horror that people forget about and Shudder, you know, even more recently with the sadness um, mm-hmm. that was on Shudder and they just do a good job at like pumping it out. So I think as a horror fan, it's a great time to be a horror fan right now because the it accessibility is. to material new and old is very accessible right now where, you know, 10, 20 years ago, it was not. I remember being that kid in Blockbusters that is literally like digging through the horror section, trying to find, you know, the horror movie that I want to watch or whatever. So it's definitely evolved and changed, I think, for um, the better. But speaking about Shudder, because obviously they're part of AMC Plus and they have some really great horror series. What is your favorite horror series? It could be right now. It could be from the past. It could be whatever. Mm. You know, uh, I was uh, in Georgia uh, over the Thanksgiving holiday uh, to spend time with my parents. And, you know, when you're at mom and dad's and you're my age, there's a lot of downtime, right? Uh, Because they're they're not interested in you anymore. They're interested in the (laughs) nine-year-old. So I had a lot of time on my hands and I actually watched... um, the entire eight episode uh, limited series, uh, 1899 on Netflix. Oh yeah. Which was really good. I, I, I was a little disappointed in the ending and I'm not going to spoil it for anybody, but um, it just was well acted and well written. And, you know, again, it was like trippy and there was a mystery um, at the center of it. And I love that it was set at sea on these vessels that all looked they they all kind of looked like either the titanic or the lusitania um which uh, i'm a big history buff so um it really appealed to me it was it was a really really great story yeah i have not gotten a chance to watch that but i'm the same way i'm a huge history buff and i have a itch for anything that scratches both that and my horror brain at the same time Um, so I'm very excited, um, to see that I have been catching up because there have been, you know, horror TV a couple years ago was very abysmal. Now we're in what you could definitely consider the golden age of TV, but also too the golden age of horror TV. So we've had a lot recently. Um, I know for me, like I still, I was catching up. That's why I'm trying to switch gears and get into 1899. Uh, but I finished uh, Anne Rice's interview with the vampire and mm-hmm. highly recommend it. Um, I was very worried about them doing an interview with the vampire series, um, especially with Anne Rice's passing shortly after that yeah. announcement. Um, but they just knocked it out of the park. So I'm excited now to see Mayfair Witches, which I think comes out in January. But um, I'm super excited to see that they are um having such good quality tv and 1899 is foreign horror right i do believe it was uh i'm not sure if it was an american studio or or a foreign studio that made it but um i will say that what one of the things that i loved about it um was the use of language in the Mm -hmm. story um because you know back in that time when people were making the transatlantic journey it was mostly for the purposes of of immigration and so yeah. there were all these different cultures and languages and and ethnicities on these vessels uh for you know a week at a time 
Uh, and that is really well portrayed in the um, in the series. You know, I, one of the things I wondered was like all these people speak French or German or an Eastern European language or, or an Asian language. And how do they talk to each other? Right. And overcome this problem that they're trying to solve right. when they can't even communicate because they don't speak the same language. Um, so it's a really interesting time. It's also, you know, uh, not too long before World War One. So there's that aspect in as well. You know, there's this tension rising in Europe between uh, Germany and and um, England and France. So it's a really interesting, really, really fun to watch uh, series. Yeah, I'm really interested about that. And that is a really cool time period because I know like for me, you know, a lot of people immigrated to Ellis Island. Our family, we immigrated from Germany over here to Middle Bass um, because we live in Ohio. Um, so they lived on Middle Bass and then they came into Sandusky and they were a huge part of commercial fishing. But a lot of people don't realize like how definitely how that would affect things because a lot of people think, oh, well, certain groups came over and stuff like that. But you know, back when our family came over, like it was predominantly German, Italian, mm -hmm. you know, Eastern European, and there's such a disconnect with dialect. So it's interesting to see how that can definitely play out. So I'm excited. And now that you're talking about it, I'm probably going to end up binging it tonight. Yeah, um, it's pretty good. It's pretty easy to binge. Um, I think I watched it in like two and a half, two, like two days. Oh yeah. I, I, that's my problem with Netflix though too. Sometimes is they get really great shows on and it's like, once I'm in, I just cannot stop. Yeah. I do not have the willpower um, to stop. But um, so what is your favorite horror genre? Oh, for sure. Supernatural horror. Uh, spend, you know, I, religious horror is, um, uh, a, you know, one, one that I really enjoy. I love historical horror though. I've written my, my first like novella that came out was set in the, during in the waning days of the civil war. Um, I studied, I mean, I have an English lit degree, um, but I have a minor in history and I've always been a big history buff. So especially in the civil war era. Um, so, you know, historical horror is a, is a big, um, uh, I'm, I'm a big fan of that as well. Ambrose Bierce and, and those guys, you know, they're, um, he, he was a big influence on some of my work. I just finished a, a, a collection of um, short stories that take place um, just before, during, and after the civil war. And I'm working on a, a like a weird Western short story collection now. Um, so I, it's been a while actually, since I've written anything that took place in the present day. Um, so Right. Definitely. I, I think historical horror is underrated. Definitely. I feel I like, do too. yeah, I don't feel like there are too many people that like tap into that, but I feel like when it's done so effectively, it's just fantastic. Like there yeah. are so many movies that I can definitely think of where I just feel like they get it spot on because I feel like with historical horror, there's that added sense of the time period. So if you have like a, you know, a period piece that's a horror that takes place during World War II, there's yeah. the added level of, I know like for me, um, I love Overlord. 
Um, That's a great movie. It yeah. is a great, fantastic movie. And I think it is a two-pronged horror because not only do you have this kind of... Um, there was a ladybug in here. Um, that was my ADD moment. <laughs> no <Not> problem. Only... <laughs> um, there was... Um, you have these creatures that are obviously like zombie things that these people are yeah. like doing. But then also too, the people who are doing them are Nazis and they are horrible, awful people yeah. that, you know, you know what's coming because of the time period and how they've treated people. So it's like this two prong issue that like adds to such a level of horror. So I think when done right, it's fantastic. So I, I, that would be one area that I would love to see more pieces in because I think we've proven, especially over the last year, that period piece horror can be really great because like, you know, we had X that came out and it was kind yeah. of, they made it look like it's going to be living. this. Yeah. It, they made it look like it's going to be this like 1970s kind of like porn themed horror. And it wasn't. And then, you know, you had the follow-up to it, which was Pearl, that kind of... Haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah. it's it's very interesting. And then now they're going to have, you know, the 1980s version um, where Mia Goth, again, is going to play Maxine. Oh, really? I didn't know that. That's yeah, they have it as a trilogy. So it's interesting because you get to see kind of like the Golden Age Hollywood Pearl character, and then Maxine is the 1970s character, and then Maxine is 1980s maxine after what happened in x mm -hmm. so it'd be very interesting to see but i i do feel like people need to take um historical horror on a little bit better um because i think once it's done well it's just a gut punch um and i feel like we don't have enough of it so one um, of my favorite historical horror movies is the others uh with Nicole. oh my gosh that is yeah. beautiful it's such a deeply unsettling you know story and and um uh you know the the use of isolation uh in that movie you know there's this sense that they're cut off you know i think they're on an island um mm -hmm. and like off the coast of ireland or something and they're also cut off by the fog which is like ever present um and uh it's just a great go it's another great ghost story um with a great twist ending, obviously. Um, yeah, and it's such a good use of how you can do a, a good movie without too many, like, plot devices and stuff. It's just very, it's straightforward. And even the twist, it's something that just doesn't even register until it fully hits. Right. But this is a movie that's PG-13 and has virtually not a lot of gore in it. Um, and it's just this hauntingly effective movie. Um, yeah. So I think I remember when that came out. That came out in 2001. And I think I was 11 at it the sounds time. Sounds about right. Wow. Yeah. Um, so that started like once it came out and it started hitting Blockbuster, that was like a huge sleepover like film. I think it was that and Signs was kind of around the time when I was yeah, like, Yeah, Signs was a great movie too. Yeah. Cause you know, your the parents would be like, oh yeah, that's fine for them to watch. Not thinking about the fact that this PG-13 movie is literally going to traumatize like the entire crowd yeah. of people there. But 
Um, I think that's such a good effective use of what a PG-13 film can be. Like, I think people think, oh, you know, a horror movie can't be effective unless it's got a rated R, you know, rating because then it can go full tilt or whatever. But I think movies like the others kind of show, yes, there are this kind of gray area that we can kind of achieve. You just have to be you kind of have to use your own effects and different things like that to kind of push your own story. So I think that's a great um, example. Um, This is my absolute favorite question to ask. And it's funny that we talk about classics because I, I love the classics. So we all know universal classics, universal monsters. Mm -hmm. They kind of built the foundation that horror sets on. Um, and they were based off of stories that kind of inspired the horror genre in general. Um, but what is your favorite universal monster? Probably would have to be Dracula. Um, oh, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm not a huge vampire fiction guy. I've read, you know, um, I've read Dracula. I've read um, Carmilla um you know i read the Ann, a couple of Anne rice's novels which mm-hmm. i really enjoyed um but um and i've seen all the movies you know the christopher lee hammer horror ones the old bella lugosi ones um i'm a big fan of um um coppola's uh bram stoker's dracula i could pretty much watch that over and over again um especially the opening montage um but um, yeah, I think Dracula because um, his character is not super well developed in Stoker's novel. He's really kind of um, a didactic character and 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 serves almost like a plot device in yes. a way. Whereas in um, a lot of other vampire literature, where he's been repurposed, or you know, in in Coppola's movie you know there's he's a very sympathetic character um you know uh uh so i i'd say he's he's my favorite character one, one of the things i love the most uh, about coppola's movie is um you know uh his anger at the at the roman catholic church uh at the time well actually i probably would have been the eastern orthodox church um given uh he's from Transylvania but in any case his anger at the church over them saying that Elizabeth cannot you know rest in peace because she committed suicide and then you know you can understand the rage in him and and then you see what it does to him over yeah. 500 years it's like any any other person who is consumed by hatred and rage no matter how righteous it is it ultimately ends up destroying them and turning them into a monster and that's what happens to vlad dracula in that movie um it's it's a it's a much more um heart-wrenching uh portrayal of of the character than um stokers in fact we used to, when, when the movie came out i was in college and and i was a, a lit student and my romantic literature or my victorian literature professor said it should have been called um francis ford coppola's bram stoker's dracula because it, it wasn't super true to stoker's novel no uh, so we did a, a deep dive recently um on bram stoker's dracula because for those who didn't know bram stoker's dracula turned um 
Francis Ford Coppola's version of Bram Stoker's Dracula turned 30 um, this year. Um, And so um, we did a really great episode and we actually happened to just coincidentally, this is a a, the crazy power of the internet. Um, One of our first guest stars was Shanna Stoker, who is Bram Stoker's relative. Oh, wow. Um, And so she did the deep dive with us. But we kind of talked about it. And the thing that works about Francis Ford Coppola's version is he starts off as this really sympathetic character that loses his beloved wife. Like you Mm. said, he gets this irate anger this fit of rage knowing that you know he did all of this to protect his homeland to for, for the, the church, church. He did it for the church and, yeah and for the church and for them to you know say oh your your beloved wife um is now going to be doomed to roam hell forever because of yeah. this this choice that happened as a repercussion of what you did um but then you know you see him with jonathan harker and he's not the most sympathetic character because he's this very, you know, manipulative, tactive kind of creature. We see that even in the scene where he brings the baby for his wives. Yeah. And I completely forgot about that until we started preparing for the deep dive. But then I feel like you kind of have to have that for then in order for you to feel sympathy for him once he meets Mina and they have that whole situation happen and then Mina goes off and marries Harker and he you know feels like everything's being ripped again you kind of have to have all of that chaos and that rage in order to understand how somebody could go through the throes of it um so you know he's not the most sympathetic character but in the end he does because you can kind of relate to making a poor choice because in a fit of rage you know justified rage um he turns his back and and in doing that he kind of realizes after meeting mina and you know turning her into a vampire that it just kind of he lost who he was as a person and i do like the fact that they relate it back to vlad dracula because obviously that was stoker's you know inspiration, inspiration. Yeah. um and coppola's version does have more teeth i think than bram stoker's because when you read bram stoker's you know it, it seems like oh yeah vlad dracula you know he he did a couple bad things it's not that bad Francis for coppola's version it's like yeah no he he literally was like staking people on the lawn yeah. and you know doing all these bad things but because of the fact that the church was being attacked, that's what he did. And then, you know, it's like, okay, I did all this crazy, dramatic things. And now you're telling me that my wife is going to be damned to hell forever. Um, so, you know, it does make him more sympathetic. But I love Dracula. I do think, as I've gotten older, though, I relate. I say this all the time, but I relate to the creature from the Black Lagoon. I think that's because I'm oh, a homebody. Yeah. And I feel like once you've kind of gotten to a certain age in life, you just kind of are like, I, I want to be at home with my stuff and my things. And if somebody came into my area and messed with my things, and then we're like, hey, you're doing a bad thing, I probably would freak out too. Yeah. <laughs> I forgot about the creature from the Black Lagoon. I remember 
back in the I think the early 80s there was this whole like revival around 3D movies and um I remember them showing the creature from the Black Lagoon on television yes. in 3D and it was really bad like there was you know maybe a couple of moments where you know some image came out of the television but it, it certainly wasn't all that they said it was going to be but that's about the limit of my exposure to the creature from the black lagoon i think didn't they make a movie called the shape of water or something like yes, that yes that's kind um, of there that was kind of uh, like a homage to yeah it was del toro's version of yeah. kind of the creature from the black lagoon i saw it when it first came out i need to rewatch it again but I haven't um, seen it, it as bad as you're saying the 3D version is, believe it or not, they actually made a stage production of the <laughs> Creature for the Black Lagoon for um, Universal for Halloween Horror Nights. And I, I'd be scared to do this, but apparently they had like a, like two to 300 foot head of the Creature from the Black Lagoon that they used at the end that was like a puppet. And supposedly that's still just chilling in like the back lots of like wow. that theater that's just kind of hidden. Like they haven't repurposed that yet. Um, so I'd be very interested to see that. But at the same time, I think I'd be very terrified to just like randomly walk towards like a, you know, 300 foot head. For sure. The creature from the Black Lagoon. Um, but yeah, it was like this whole like they're he falls in love with this woman and they go back and forth and then you know they have this whole and it's a musical by the way too and um they they go back and forth and then at the end he eats her oh. and that was the show <laughs> and this wow. was considered family friendly act um theater <laughs> for halloween horror nights so um yeah Hopefully with the new relaunch, they so they are doing, they're supposed to be doing, I would assume for the fact that they actually have a castle that is Dracula's castle just chilling in the, the said spot now. Um, but they are doing a universal, um, they, they have their epic universe or whatever that they're building. They're supposed to be doing a universal monsters land. Oh, wow. Um, and they actually awesome. have a ride that will go through all of them but their whole idea is they're going to be doing individual rides for each person so universal uh creature from the black lagoon is supposed to be like the jaws ride um and the wolfman they're thinking is going to be a roller coaster and there's a dark ride with all of them but then there's supposedly going to be a dark ride with dracula so who knows sounds great yeah i i would be very interested um as long as they keep the 300 foot creature from the black lagoon head away from me i think i could live without that <laughs> <laughs> for the rest of my life like i i just can't imagine being the poor universal employee that has to like go clean around it and there's just this random head like in the back lot somewhere <laughs> probably get, you probably get desensitized to it after a while you probably will. I just can't imagine. I live by a theme park and I just can't imagine like being desensitized by that. Like I, they, they probably have to pay somebody pretty well to do all that. Um, but sure. I could not imagine that, doing that. So um, my last question, which is kind of related to this, if you could pick out of any, 
ghosts, vampires, werewolves, or zombies, or even witches, who would you be? Oh. God, that's a great question. I'd I'd probably um I don't know, maybe a werewolf. Um, even though it, apparently you know, all the literature and all the movies portray the transformation as excruciatingly painful. Um, there's something about having animal senses and reflexes and um let's face it, like no need for morality. That is very freeing, you know, because animals don't have a sense of morality. They they just do what they 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 need to do to survive. Um, I, I think that would be pretty interesting, pretty cool, um, except for the pain part. I think that would suck pretty bad, um, especially if you've seen American Werewolf in London. <laughs> That's oh, one, yeah. one of the uh, most uh, excruciatingly painful uh, uh, transformations ever. Um yeah, werewolf, I'd have to say. Yeah, I see. I could definitely, I agree. I definitely could do being a werewolf without the transformation. The whole, that's the whole thing that throws me off. I'm just like, listen, I would much rather like get bitten and be turned into a vampire or even as an adult woman, I think given the option, I'd probably lean more towards a witch because I think witches are very misunderstood especially yeah. in culture because they're just women who kind of had a strong voice and didn't exactly match up with the times that they were in. Um, but werewolves to me, like that's the part that gets me. Like I could not rip my own skin off, you know, every couple of days. And then, you know, I, my whole thing is like, we see that great transformation from American werewolf in London, but like, we don't see the whole like his skin coming back on you know like yeah is that painful coming back on or like you know you see dog soldiers and you see these like you know six foot men turn into like 13 foot like werewolves yep like how do you shrink back from that like the you know it, it all seems all well and good when you're transforming in the moment but like afterwards like and it, you know you're eating people as a werewolf like you know i yeah. think the the best part that you know creep show does a really good job with different things but the creep show holiday special they have a, a werewolf on there and his whole thing is, is like afterwards he's like you know spitting out bones and stuff like that and he he doesn't realize that he is a werewolf um and i'm just thinking like that has to be the same process like what happens after you've literally like eaten somebody as werewolf and then you go back to being john you know from down the street do you know do you just does your body forget about eating somebody or do you have to deal with the repercussions of you know regrowing your own skin and also digesting a whole human being yeah i'd be very interested to see how that would happen so it does get skipped over a lot in in werewolf movies and werewolf literature you know um oftentimes the what i've seen is um in movies the the transformation back to human form it, it's almost uh cathartic in a way uh yes for the the character because they've become this animal and and they've been you know unable to control their animal instincts 
Uh, but then usually typically they're portrayed as falling unconscious and, and asleep almost. And then yes. the transformation happens and it's almost kind of peaceful, like almost like they've engaged in this animalistic bloodlust and, and then they're sated by it. And um, then they, they fall asleep. It's actually quite sexual in, in, in some ways, you know? Um, yeah. So yeah, definitely. I'd be very interested. Uh, listen, I if it was like trick or treat where, hey, listen, you have to go out every year around this time and once a year you turn into this person, but then you get all the benefits the year round. Okay, I could see that. But every like 14 days or every lunar cycle, yep. I just don't think that that would jive with me. I, I the Again, like regrowing your own skin. I feel like that's just inherently painful (laughs) so most definitely well thank you for uh doing my icebreakers um i I love your icebreakers those are great (laughs) questions yeah um because we had a chance to talk about horror too so oh listen we could we could talk all day about that um uh, yeah, I, I feel like I randomly sneak that into every single conversation I have. Um, so, and people who know me will tell you the same thing. Um, don't get me started on horror um, <laughs> because I will literally like talk about 27 movies and like an hour period. I literally had a friend one time who's like had a notebook was like, okay, you're telling me to watch this movie, this movie. And uh, so I just have to like start sending them like, oh, I saw these couple movies this week please watch these. So, you know what so cracks that. me up is I'm, I'm always the guy at work around Halloween. People will ask, hey, what are some movies I should watch, some horror movies I should watch? But then they always caveat that by saying, but they can't be too scary. And I'm like, well, then what the hell are you watching a horror movie yeah. for? Like, I mean, that's the whole point of watching is to get scared in a safe environment. I think uh, the best thing about this is I deal with so many different groups of people in my life but the main one of them obviously because I am a mother of uh surprisingly enough a nine-year-old child who's going to be 10 um next month and um he he has a lot of you know he he's autistic and we have a lot of friends who go to his school Mm -hmm. that he's close with and stuff and um I'm in different mom groups and things like that and I always get asked like, okay, my 13 year old really likes horror right now. What movies should he watch? Or my nine year old showing an interest in spooky things. Mm-hmm. What should he watch? Um, so it's very interesting to kind of like gauge that it's like, okay, um, it can be scary, but not too scary. Okay. I'm like, okay, well you have to really dissect that. Do we want like lightly scary, scary adjacent, traumatizing level you know what what scale are we going on so yeah I um people a lot of times are like it can't be too scary I'm like okay that's not a gauge you have to actually tell me like um there is a site though that's really good it's called um does the dog die and (laughs) it's got a um it's it, it is a real site and um, I think that's what it's called. I'll have to look and we'll, we'll link it in this episode. But it basically, these people run it and it's all about different movies, um, a lot of horror movies. And it you can look specific triggers. So like for me, if I don't like spiders, I type in spiders and it'll right. tell you what movies 
to not watch. Or, you know, if you don't like animal mutilation, you know, don't watch this movie or don't watch this part. Um, so that would have been really good to have if we could go back in time when The Hobbit came out. Because I remember, like, there being the giant spiders or whatever. But that's when they started, again, using 3D technology. And I watched the second Hobbit. And there's, like, spider, giant spiders literally coming at yeah. me in 3D. I, I think I could have skipped that experience. Um, so I'm very grateful that there are uh, websites like that. But, yeah, I have to, uh, same thing. I have to be like, listen... Telling me not too scary is not an actual level. Like, we need a gauge of, like, can you handle gore, you know, light gore? Can you handle Terrifier 2 level, you know? What, what I can haven't we seen go? either one of those movies. I did, I did see a clip from Terrifier 2, I think, where I think he's got, like, a Tommy gun or something, and he's just blowing people away. I don't know where oh. it is, but it was, like... But to me, that violence was so campy that it it's not like gross really you know uh it wasn't so, even settling to me but i i don't know anything about those movies i don't know if they're campy on purpose or what yeah yeah so they are uh definitely um they we've been lucky enough to have um david howard thornton who plays art the clown on um, oh really that is yes. awesome that's an awesome guest yes um and so but um they those guys just go balls to the wall yeah. those guys mad respect terrifier 2 had a complete and total movement around halloween um mm -hmm. where we kind of had that like halloween-esque performance happen where it's this movie that like it's a follow-up to the first movie and it completely just blows people out of the water and um gets in the top 10 and it's an independent horror film um that's about a clown that runs around and enjoys killing people um so i think what it did for horror especially independent horror is fantastic and the guys behind it are great um, well it's the independent guys who can really push the envelope because they don't have a bunch of suits telling them you can't oh do yeah or it's not gonna it's not going to make us money, you know, I mean, it's, it's usually their money and maybe some other investors who are, you know, and they're doing it on a shoestring budget. Um, yeah. The guy who the story they want to tell the director who does it, Damien, he, I was not, I'm not a huge gore fan. And when I first heard about it, I'm like, listen, that doesn't sound great. And then I heard people talk about it. And I was like, oh, I don't think I want to watch that. Um, but after learning how much they put into that, that is a whole moment. Like Damien literally has his own recipe for blood to make it look grittier on camera. Mm -hmm. And I mean, those guys literally will just go balls to the wall. Like everything that you're seeing on camera with them being campy and stuff like that, it is a thousand times worse behind the scenes. Like just knowing some of the guys that are behind it. They are just absolute teddy bears, but they're clowns as well. And um, I mean, Art the Clown at this point, he could go to space and everyone in the horror community would probably be applauding. Um, but it, I'll have it, to check out the first movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. It's again, I think it's actually on Tubi, um, which is interestingly enough. And then the second one is actually on Scream Box, which I think is one of the new horror platforms. I don't think I, 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 don't think I can 
is that an internet service? Like, can you, can you, cause I don't, I don't know if I could get it through my cable provider. Um, I think you can actually like get it if you have like a Roku or whatever, Oh, okay. like a fire stick. I think that you could do it through there. I know right. that they did I it. I have like, seen it on fire stick. Yeah. They, I think they did it that way so they could make it more accessible to people. Um, cause it did have a limited time release in theaters and it ended up doing a lot a way a lot better than I think they thought it was going to be and but then it came out on Screenbox for Halloween um but they're good I mean listen if you don't like if you don't mind gore um I don't mind it at all yeah that's that's a perfect movie um because I mean I tell people all the time listen if you don't mind somebody being sawed in half watch that movie if you do then that's probably not a movie you want to check out um but I think it's it's great. So, um, but yeah, thanks so much for doing the icebreakers. And we're going to talk about what brought you on here, which is your amazing book, The Strange Nighttime Journey of Father Stephen Merlot. And it is amazing. I'm going to actually read. I don't generally like synopsises on the back of books, um, but I think this is a great one. Um, It does very much encompass what the book is talking about, but it says in the year since his brother Chris committed suicide, Father Stephen Merlot has not been able to pick up the pieces. He is racked with guilt over what he believes was his part in Chris's death, and his once meteoric rise through the Catholic Church in New York City has become an agnomicness. I'm sorry, that was me not tripping over my words. Um... And haunted by disturbing dreams of his brother's suffering in a hellish underworld where Lowe is at a breaking point. Um, and I think that that's wonderful. The detail in this book is insane. Like, you know, we have images of what we think hell is. Yeah. And this, you know, your character, Stephen, literally, quite literally gets dropped into hell and yeah. has to take this journey And just the way you even describe it, I know I was reading it earlier before we came on, but like you, the way you describe even some of the, the lands, I mean, it's just amazing. Like I know one of the things that popped out to me was like uh, the sea, the sea, like you talked about the sea in such a deep way that it just makes the well of lost souls. And, you know, you talk about like the, the storm is passing and it's this very atmospheric, even the cover, like, I hope we are going to post this on our Instagram so people can see this cover. But this cover. cover is amazing. Like it, it almost like looks like Mount Vesuvius yeah. was put in the middle of a, like an island in the ocean. Yeah. I, I, and it's I really just love very... Yeah, the cover is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, the illustrator did a wonderful job on it. And um, the publisher was, uh, I mean, this is one of the, um, the advantages of working with a small press is it's much more of a partnership than if you work with uh, a large publisher where I think I have never done that, uh, but um, you know, from what I understand and what I've been told, you have a lot less control over the title right. or the cover. They're gonna they're gonna do what the marketing data tells them to do. You know, this is the kind of cover this book should have, and 
I didn't have to deal with that. You know, um, I worked with a guy named Tyler Houth, who is the uh, founder of Muddy Paul Press, which is the small press in Massachusetts that put the book out. And he asked me, what kind of cover do you want? And I had um, just read a book uh, by a guy named John Langan called The Fisherman. Um, and it's a beautiful, haunting um, kind of cos um, cosmic horror uh, book. But it has a wonderful cover. Uh, and uh, it it's, looks like the kind of landscape painting you might see in uh, a museum or something like that. And I felt like that was what I wanted for Father Marlowe um, because I feel like his journey is very um, epic in scale. It takes place over a compressed period of time, but, you know, um, it, he goes, he, he travels a great distance uh, in this very short amount of time. And so I wanted the book to, the cover to show that there's these great landscapes that he has to pass through in order to complete his journey and his mission. So I'm a big fan of, of the cover. I loved it when, when the, when I saw it, uh, saw the early uh, drawings of it. And also I love the title. Um, uh, it was one thing where the, the publisher was kind of like, you know, this is a really long title for a book. And I was like, you know, I can't think of a shorter title. I was open to changing it if I could come up with a better one or he could come right. up with a better one. But, um, you know, he was like, I really love the title too. I'm just worried about how we're going to make it look on the cover. But again, the illustrator did a great job on it. I really It just looks otherworldly. Like yeah. the I mean, I, yes, the title is long, but it is the perfect title. And it just looks encompassed in the actual like the surroundings yeah. and it's kind of almost melting into this and it, I mean like the the very things that you detail in this book it's just conjured up in this image I mean you yeah. know straight from the get-go that you you know you're about to experience this journey with this man and it is not going to be easy um, and just the way you layered the story, you know, you have this man who very clearly is dealing with grief, but also some emotional baggage and trauma. And then on top of it, he's questioning his life, his profession, everything in it, yeah. and then gets put in a circumstance that's, you know, I would say almost say beyond his wildest dreams, but wildest nightmare and yeah. kind of has to work through everything while also taking this journey journey at the same time and it's so interesting so how how did you come up with this like how when did you first think mm, this this seems like the one that i'm going to do this is the story this is the story no. yeah uh so the the book uh, actually started out as a 2000 word short story uh, and the genesis for it, and like a lot of my stories was I was kind of playing the what if game. Mm -hmm. And uh, the the first version of the story, uh, I was I just was thinking one day, I was like, what if a priest, a young priest who's fresh out of the seminary and is, you know, very gung ho about being a priest and and thinks he really has a very clear understanding of what good and evil is and what 
It means to love unconditionally. It means, um, which most priests coming out of the seminary are very young. They don't because they're in their early 20s. Um, you know, they just don't have the experience they need to really, you know, um, understand that. And so I was like, what if this priest who thinks he knows everything has an encounter with a satanic um, being in his confessional and has his whole world torn apart? And so it, I shocked that story. I wrote it, put it through a couple of drafts and could not get anyone to publish it. I was submitting it to magazines and, and, you know, journals and no one would even sniff it. And so I was like, okay, there's still like a corn, the, there's still the kernel of a good story here. And so then I started thinking about, well, like, what if I reverse it and the priest is the one who's really in pain? Why is he in pain? And then like, what if the floor underneath the confessional disintegrates and he falls into this netherworld. And that's really kind of how the story started. And I just kind of, you know, fleshed it out um, in my mind. You know, typically I don't start writing until I know the beginning, the middle and the ending. I may not know how I'm going to get from point A to point B to point C, but right. I typically have a good idea of um the beginning, the middle, and the ending. Uh, so once I had that, I, I just started writing. And so it went from like a 2000 words short story to like an 80 page novella. And then I had a couple of friends read it and they were like, this, this is really good, but it, it needs more. And so I put it through like four drafts ultimately. And before I uh, submitted it to uh, Muddy Paul Press and a bunch of literary agents too, like it got refused by, it must've gotten turned down by you know, 30 or 40 literary agents. Um, and, uh, but, you know, one day, uh, Muddy Paul gave me a call and uh, um, the, the publisher was like, you probably don't know who I am, but I, um, I really, I've read half your book and I really love it. It reminds me of Dante's Inferno and I really want to publish it. And I was like, okay, we'll finish reading it uh, so that you know you want to publish it. Um, and, and we just kind of went from there. So that's kind of how it got started. Yeah. I, Dante's Inferno is definitely a good way of explaining it because it does have such that quality. Like it's, it's gone Dante's Inferno mixed with these deep traumatic themes, but also this deep religious theme but also at the same time too, it kind of harks like a gothic imagery. Yeah. And it's just such a good melding. And to those literary agents out there, like you you missed out. You missed <laughs> you missed the boat. Um Muddy Paw Press did the good one um by getting the story out because I mean this is just it's a, a wild ride and it's definitely something I don't think that we get enough of in literature you know i think a lot of people shy away from talking about like spirits and demons and religious themes um yeah. in order to not offend people but i i feel like throughout your whole entire book there's nothing that is overtly i mean it's obviously religious but it's not overtly like religious in the sense of like offending somebody or coming on with this message of like you know, a, a certain way or something like that. It just doesn't yeah. really go to, 
job. I don't think, like, the, I don't think the book proselytizes. Yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not meant to do that. I mean, I grew up Catholic. Right. Uh, I'm kind of a non-practicing Catholic at this point. Uh, but it had a huge influence on me uh, as a person, you know, in my formative years. Um, but, you know, to me, the the book, is, it's all those things that you described. Um, but, you know, I, I feel like what it is, is it's a, the, the, the main kernel of the story is about this priest who has an imperfect understanding of what it means to love unconditionally. Yeah. And, and um, there's no doubt in my mind that Stephen loved his brother very much, but Stephen is also a bit of a homophobe. Uh, right. and, and clearly his brother's sexuality did not sit well with him, even if he was supportive of him and tried to help him. Um, you know, he calls him something pretty horrible at the end of the book and and you and that you know the truth comes out about how he really felt about it i think his his perspective on that changes um and he he doesn't feel that way anymore but it's a journey it's about him overcoming his own flaws and his own inability to accept his brother for who yeah. he was um and to accept responsibility for the part he played in his brother's death. Um, so, yeah, I think that's what's the kernel of the story. You know, he's in a profound crisis of faith. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but, you know, I, I think he didn't have to be a priest for yeah. the story to work, you know? Um, I think it I, just adds to it because of the fact of the landscape, but it never once is it like a plot device to kind of tell this story about religion. It's just him being, you know, a person. And then he just so happens to also be a priest. And yeah. the way that he's feeling in his life is also bleeding through to his profession. Never once reading this book do I feel like there's a preaching message uh, quality to it or anything like that. I think it's simply it. the reason it works with him being a priest is he gets literally like you said dropped into this landscape yeah. where he has to work out his own emotional baggage and really kind of take ownership of certain things that have happened in his life and um i think him being a priest is just kind of the footnote in the story you know it's it's yes it's part of who he is and it kind of lends to the landscape but it's more or less about his own ownership of his trauma and also the things that he's also brought, you know, like you said, with his brother, you know, really his part to play and what happened to his brother and the guilt that he feels over it and kind of working through his own trauma at the same time. So I think it does a great story because not only is it a relatable human story, but then mm -hmm. the horror elements to it are just amplified by how strong the story is um so i think it's amazing it's a great idea um a great concept that comes just springs forth to life like i said with the the cover you know you know exactly what you're getting into mm -hmm. and you know within the first 
30 pages, you know, you're dropped right into it. Yeah. And you kind of get the sense of who he is. It's, it's just, you know, you, you kind of walk into the story, you understand that he's in this place in his life and then he gets dropped into this landscape and it's, Oh, how do I get out from here? Um, so I think it does a really great, um, job of picking up those themes and I think a way that a lot of people wouldn't conceptualize um so if you haven't gotten a chance to read it um go on Amazon right now um and look up Ambrose and check definitely check out the story because it is absolutely wonderful I can't say enough good things about it again I'm not saying this just because Ambrose is on (laughs) um I if you had talked to me earlier this morning, you would know exactly um, that I would say the same things on camera now as I did this morning um, to different people that I interacted with. Um, But I think this is such a solid book. And Ambrose has a couple other stories like he was talking about, you know, he, um, your story, Old Hollow, right? Yes. Yes. Um, I think that's on Amazon as well, along with a couple others. Um, so we will link Ambrose's Amazon page down below along with Money All Press page down below along with Ambrose's Instagram. Um, but I have to ask, um, what inspired you to get into writing? Um, because by day uh-huh. you are a software guy. Well, I'm a marketer. I'm, I don't write yes. code. I'm not a, yeah. So Yeah, no, you're not, you're not a code writer. I'm like a developer. I'm not, um, you know, I started writing uh, when I was like nine. Uh, and at that time, um, I was reading a lot of like Arthurian fantasy and Tolkien and stuff like that. And so like a lot of the early stuff that I wrote as a kid was, you know, like a Tolkien ripoff in a lot yeah. of ways that's how you learn to write you imitate the the authors that you um that you enjoy so i've been i always was writing from an early age luckily my parents you know supported me you know like they got me like a a computer when i was about like in high school you know they when i had been writing for four or five years and and it was obvious that i I wasn't going to just give it up it hadn't been a lark so they, you know, spent a good amount of money on a uh, an IBM compatible, which is what they were called back then. Um, and, you know, I just kept writing. I became an, an English lit and creative writing major in college. Um, and then I was a newspaper reporter for 15 years um, before I uh, left journalism and, and uh, went into uh, the technology uh, industry. So, you know, writing has always been a part of who I am and um, I still write pretty much every day, um, at least three to five days a week. You know, I'm writing, I try to get a thousand words a day. I'm always kind of working on something new. Um, So yeah, being a writer is just, it's what I do. It's what makes me happy. So as someone who also has a good amount of duality in their life, um, you know, for me, I do the podcast um, as kind of, I would say my more nighttime gig. Um, uh, But, you know, I have, just as you do, I have a degree in um, legal studies um, Mm -hmm. and I have a passion for the law. And a lot of people, when they hear both things, Yes, I am a horror podcaster who also creates horror content. 
but then I also am a legal enthusiast and a paralegal. Um, they kind of get this, you know, they're like, what? Those two don't mix together. Yeah. How, how do you feel like you balance the duality in your life? You know, I mean, it doesn't come up that much in my day job. I mean, when I have a new book coming out, so, mm -hmm. you know, Father Marlowe is my third book. Mm -hmm. um, I've had a, like, you know, a dozen or so short stories published over the years. Um, but, you know, whenever I have a new book come out, I usually tell them. And, and you know, when I start a new job, you know, there's always, you know, kind of the cheesy, like, tell us a little bit about yourself. And I always yeah. mention a published horror writer and it's just not something you hear that often you know in a professional setting um so I've never gotten any strange looks it's been more like oh wow that's interesting tell me about that um but I will say sometimes I'm a little bashful about it you know it's all yeah. I don't know why it's just it's it's almost like um this insecurity uh i think that yeah you kind of have. feel like your lives like when you have two such separate like dualities i feel like it's almost this thing where you kind of it's not the world that has a problem with it you yourself in your mind you're kind of like uh should i really be bleeding those across each yeah. other like shouldn't i be compartmentalizing those I do find that that's a very interesting um, juxtaposition because like I said, you know, I I go from being, you know, a stay-at-home mom with my child who has special needs to being, you know, a college graduate um, with a degree in legal studies um, and then having this is something that I do as well. You know, a lot of people look at that like... I, I feel like I think people look at that as like, oh, what does a mom in Ohio know about horror? And, you know, she's a legal yeah. enthusiast. Um, but a lot of times I feel like that's just me thinking that in my head. I have had interactions where that's happened, um, where pe I think people have kind of not necessarily come out and said it, but there's been kind of weird vibes that I felt like yeah. in certain areas that I've gone in where it's like, oh, well that's interesting um that you do but yeah I think it is kind of an insecurity because you're like I'm good at my day job and I'm also good at this but yeah. can I be good at them together at the same time and you know should should I be connecting these together so I definitely understand how that um feels but I feel like you're the you know a lot of the people that we have on they're the same way you know they have this perception of who they are during the day and then this is what they do as well and it's yeah kind of very interesting to see you know the lives we live you know after you leave your nine to five exactly yeah so um so obviously with father malo this is a great book but if you could collaborate with any author living or dead who would you collaborate with? Oh God, there are so many. Um, I probably would love to have collaborated with um, Ambrose Bierce uh, because 
um, he was kind of this interesting bridge between Edgar Allan Poe and H.P. Lovecraft, who was another, I'm a, a big fan of Lovecraft's uh, work. Um, but, you know, Beers was a, uh, a correspondent who covered the Civil War, and um, I believe he was a soldier as well um, uh, on the Union side. Um, but he led a really interesting life, and, and he had a, a, a flair for both the cynical and the macabre. And those things both appeal to me. Um, he was kind of a dyed in the wool skeptic, which I am. Um, I was a reporter for a long time and kind of got paid to be skeptical, skeptical and ask right. people questions um, that you know normally wouldn't ask in polite society. Um, but uh, you know, I just think his writing was uh, really uh, spare, but also um haunting and magical and it was often uh imbued with a time in our history as americans that um i think is really important for everyone who is a citizen to understand which is the civil war and the, the yeah. time after the war um and so I, I would love to just have collaborated with him you know i think just think he was a, a great great writer um he died under very mysterious circumstances too he just disappeared in mexico um uh in i think the early 1900s maybe it was 1890s i can't remember but i mean if you don't die mysteriously and go off somewhere what are you doing with your life um especially with macabre um uh, the the reason i was looking at this while you were talking um, because it jogged my memory, but there is a really um, good movie on Shutter right now um, that came out, I think, like right before Halloween or like during Halloween, but it's called Raven's Hollow. Yes, um, I watched it. Yes. And it is fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed it. Um, but as you were talking about that, it made me think of that and yeah. um the inspiration um behind that so yeah um i i would love to see that um i also when you were saying tolkien and you were talking about how you know tolkien kind of inspired you growing up it'd be very interesting to see you and tolkien writing a tolkien-esque version of father malo <laughs> mm. um i feel like that would be a great clash up um if you never thought about that before, but well, he's got uh, a lot of horror elements in his yes, stories, right? even though it's considered high fantasy, um, you know he you know there's a lot of scary stuff in his in in his work. Oh, terrifying! Like and you I mentioned said, spiders earlier, right? Yeah, yeah, that was so obviously like I grew up with Tolkien, and so I know about that. But like when I conceptualized they were going to do a three-part of The Hobbit because I had actually, The Hobbit's one of the first ones that I had read um, and I had also watched. There was a really great animated series, um, animated yeah. movie for The Hobbit. That was my uh, first exposure yeah. to The Hobbit. Yeah, my dad had gotten it on VHS at like a gas station on our way to um, Colorado because obviously we live in Ohio and um, we would drive 
to Colorado where my dad's family was from and we had like a big Astro van <laughs> um that had like a um a TV with like a videotape thing yeah. um and so we would watch movies and um my sister would get to pick a lot of times so um Scooby-Doo would be on a lot I knew a lot mm -hmm. of the Scooby-Doo movies like the early 2000s by heart yeah um but my dad had The Hobbit so that was one of my first exposures so I just didn't remember it being like it was creepy especially for a kid's cartoon now looking back at it um, but I just didn't conceptualize like how, and obviously then I read the books and Lord of the Rings came out and it was just yeah. very popular, you know, in my um, teenage years, but the Hobbit that coming out the way that they did the three part to me, there was so many more horror elements in the three part Hobbit series than you know, the Lord of the Rings series um that it predecessed I just felt like there was a lot so no I was not prepared like obviously I know you know Sheila and that there was a right. big giant spider completely glossed over the fact that you know they talk about Sheila being the last of like the great spiders and stuff yep. like that and that there were a ton so no there was no trigger warning to say hey don't watch this movie in 3D there's going to be like a 25 minute um part that has spiders and if you watch it in 3d it's going to be popping out at you so yeah. kind of like how you said you know 3d you think 3d in your mind is like just you know oh random things here and there you know this is when they really started doing like the 3d because they were adapting the tvs and the stuff like that so they really did so i mean they were literally coming at you so i'm just like it's insane i don't the technology they can do now with the technology i actually can't watch too much 3d stuff now um because it makes my head hurt actually yes. the technology has advanced so much that you know they can throw all these different things it's almost like sensory overload i think yeah especially with like vr and stuff like that now it's yep. it's a lot but you know that's when they really started kind of hitting it and they did do a lot of like the more action movies so um i just remember being like you know they should have just warned you if you do not like spiders don't watch this 25 minute period go get some popcorn go to the bathroom and come back <laughs> um so every time i watch it i'm like okay I have to remember that from this mark to this mark, we cannot watch this. Like if we do, we have to like fast forward and stuff through there. Um, but there are a lot of horror elements. And I do think that that does get forgotten because, you know, it's this very Arthurian story like you're talking about. And, yeah. you know, you're kind of caught in the high fantasy. But I was just very surprised The Hobbit had just so many more horror elements, like from the spiders to like, the wraiths to you know the orcs and everything like that you know i remember being the original lord of the Rings series being terrifying but not on that level and i just remember going you know if that had come out when lord of the rings had come out i think my brain just wouldn't have accepted it <laughs> so what? having the hobbit like then and obviously progressing into more of a horror fan and stuff like that I think it was very well done it kind of almost does kind of like what the mummy does for horror you know the Brendan Fraser version it's yeah. like horror 
but it's also action and horror at the same time, which I feel like there are very few movies that can do that. Um, and that's one of them. So I feel like Lord of the Rings kind of reminds us, hey, listen, Tolkien had some pretty dark themes as, as well. Um, but it's just interesting to see that now. It'd be interesting for him to go back and redo the Lord of the Rings trilogy and add maybe more of those like elements that kind of were in there. Um, but that would also probably be a crap to ton of money. Um, cause I know like yeah. the Lord of the Rings series was like millions upon billions of dollars to make. Um, so what is next for you? Well, I, like I said, I'm always writing, I'm always working on something. So, um, you know, I've got a couple of things going. Um, I, um, I just, like I said, I just finished um, a collection of short stories that are set like in the antebellum period and the civil war and then like reconstruction. And then out of that um, short story collection was a story that actually just kept growing and became a novel. And so I have that, which I need to put through a second draft. I just finished the first draft um, probably two months ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I'm really excited about that story. It's set during reconstruction oh gosh um, that's gonna be amazing yeah um and then uh and then uh you know so when i usually when i finish a big project you know like a novel or a novella i usually let it sit for like three months but i don't stop writing i just don't work on that because i need to get some perspective on it um so I've been writing the, the, I just, I, I've got two like weird Western horror, uh, short stories that I've written. Um, uh, and they're set like in the, the 1880s. Um, and actually the funny thing is I've been writing them on like real typewriters. I'm kind of a, a, a typewriter aficionado. And, uh, my wife thinks I've lost my mind because I've, I've purchased like five, vintage typewriters from I like I think that's amazing years. you hand you typed a note that you put in the book when you sent it to me yeah and I literally opened it and I was the kind of person I grew up with my great-grandparents basically being like my parents mm -hmm. and um, my grandmother had a typewriter um that was my uncle's and I remember going down and like typing my short stories on it and they had yeah. like his medical encyclopedias and stuff like that down there um but it just brought me back and I just I opened it and I was like you know this is amazing who types anymore like this is I just love great. typing um you know uh what inspired me to um to buy a typewriter I I, I found a typewriter um when I was on my honeymoon um several years ago in a, an antique shop and I tried to get it restored and they were like, you know, there's rust in this machine. And once that happens, you basically, you can't restore them unless you want to spend thousands of dollars, which I didn't. Um, so I just kind of set it aside and it was just like a desk ornament. Um, but then um, I read um, this book that was a collection of Shirley Jackson's letters and she wrote them all on typewriters. Cause that's what, the technology was when Jackson was writing. And I was like, you know, it would be really cool to have a typewriter and just write letters once in a while, or maybe try and write a short story. And so I bought a typewriter and then it quickly became like an obsession. And I have like five of them now. Um, 
And so I've written three stories on the typewriter. I still write letters like to my friends and to my, to my mother and that kind of thing. Um, and, but what I've noticed is, um, for a long time writing on a, a laptop, you know, I, I would kind of struggle to get to my thousand words a day mm -hmm. goal. I'd usually peter out around 700, 800 words. And so when I started writing on a typewriter, I, I must've, you know, like hitting a thousand words was not a problem at all. And I think the reason is because it, it taps into a different part of your brain and also you're, there's less sentence crafting you can do with a typewriter unless you want to, you know, you, yeah. you can't delete anything, right? Like, I mean, you can exit out or whatever, but really what it forces you to do is just write the damn story. And mm -hmm. so I found that I wrote on it very quickly. I think probably the first drafts aren't as polished as they would be on a laptop, mm -hmm. um, but that's okay. It's just another way of getting to where you need to go, which is to have a, a polished draft. All my stories usually go through at least three drafts anyway. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, I have found writing on a typewriter to be liberating in a lot of ways. Um, I still, you know, the majority of my writing is done on a laptop. Um, I usually only do the first drafts on a typewriter uh, and I've only been doing it, you know, for, you know, about a year now. Um, but uh, I do love writing on them. It's just something about that clacking sound that they make uh, and the feeling of the keys under your fingers and, and seeing the word on the printed page. It, it's just, just, there's something magical about it. I really love it. Yeah. It just taps into like that. I like how you put that because it is when you are on a computer, you are more likely to self edit because I know yeah. like, even for me, um, I have like Grammarly on mine and it kind of goes through and catches because I, I'm just like, listen, I'm human. I make errors. Word even makes errors sometimes. So I have multi-layered, yeah. but you kind of do, you like self-edit yourself and you're like, okay, I can't get this. But with like typewriting, you're like, listen, I, I just have to get it out or either I need to get up and leave. Um, yeah. And I can't sit there and look at a blank page, right? Like I can yeah. on a computer screen, you know, I mean, you're sitting there with this old machine um, and um, a blank piece of paper. And I don't know, it's just something about it that I'm able to write very quickly uh, on a typewriter. And I think it's just because I'm not being so precious about my words, right? Like I'm I'm just trying to tell the story. And the first the first draft is always the funnest draft to do mm -hmm. in my experience. Um, revision and editing is very, can be very difficult and time consuming and it can be frustrating. Um, but um, I think on a typewriter, the first draft, like type, everyone should write their first drafts on a typewriter because you're really just vomiting the story onto the page and then you can perfect it on your laptop um later yeah definitely i i think that that's definitely great advice um so when you are not being a multi-talented man <laughs> thank um, you <laughs> <laughs> what do you do in your free time oh uh, well like i said i'm a husband and a dad so uh you know i have a nine-year-old boy who is a big baseball player and, and oh yeah and that's such cares. a fun age yeah he shares his dad's love of baseball. It's the only sport I grew up playing. Um, 
you know, I, uh, I do what most writers do. I read a lot. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I do subscribe to um, the notion that if you want to be a good writer, you've got to write every day and read every day. So I do a lot of reading, but, you know, spend a lot of time watching TV with my wife and, um, you know, spending time with my son and our dog, um, you know, just, and then I'm working, right? Like that's, yeah. that takes up the majority of everybody's day is working. So, um, so that's what I do. Yeah, definitely. So where can we find you on social media? Yeah. Um, so on, I'm on Twitter, uh, I'm on Instagram and I have a blog. Um, the blog is called strange nighttime journeys. Um, you know, uh, it's an homage to my new book. Mm -hmm. Um, the, I don't know the URLs for them actually. Isn't that really No, sad? we'll go ahead. It's okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll link them down below. Everyone knows, um, go check the description in this episode. You will find links to everything. Um, we are really good about making sure that we, if we talk about it, we have links for it all yeah, um, down a, below. I have an author page on Amazon and on Goodreads as well. So, I mean, there's any number of ways you can find my books. Um, yeah. You know. And a lot of, for people who um, have Amazon, a lot of your books are on Kindle Unlimited. They um, are. I noticed. Yeah. So definitely take advantage of that. I love Kindle Unlimited. Um, I read a lot through there. I'm the same way. I prescribe to reading a lot. Um, so there are a lot of times where I think people look at me like, oh, you're on your phone all this time. And I'm literally just like reading, reading. through yeah. <laughs> all these books. Um, and also too, I'm a sucker for just having like the actual physical copy. So I have a lot of physical copies that are like tucked away here um, that not a lot of people see um when they're viewing the podcast here but um there's just so many great horror that I've been exposed to even in the last year that I just I'm continually like trying to catch up and read all of it um so but yeah I would definitely recommend going and finding his author page on Amazon and if you have Kindle Unlimited take advantage of it and read it because they are fantastic. Um, so thank you so much for coming on. This was absolutely delightful. And, it was for um, me too. Thank you for having me. <laughs> no problem. Um, we look forward to having you back on for your next book. Um, Cause like we always say, once you're on the Horrorcraft podcast, you always are coming back on. Um, Wonderful. I'd love to. <laughs> So, um, but yes, definitely check out Ambrose's book, The Strange Nighttime Journey of Father Stephen Merlot, um, and Marlowe, sorry. And um, there is, like I said, we will link everything down below. Um, get your hands on a copy or read a digital copy, however you're going to read it. But read it because it is fantastic. And I want to thank you again for coming on. And until next time, this is me from the Horrorcraft Podcast, Cassandra, and I'm saying goodbye and stay spooky. We are out. <laughs>